You're listening to the Transport for the North podcast. Hello and welcome to the Transport for the North podcast. I'm your host Gemma and my colleague Stephen is here with me today. Hi Stephen. Hi Gemma. So this is our first Uh, episode of the brand new year so since the last time you heard from us a lot of things have happened uh christmas is normally a quiet time but actually it was uh really busy for a change so we got a new government the conservatives are back in power that was just before christmas over christmas we've had quite a a busy period with um rail matters uh we've had early announcements on uh franchises which we'll come to in a bit more detail soon and of course at the start of a new year and a bit later on you'll hear from our chief executive barry white who Stephen spoke to the other day um, about what we're looking forward to in 2020 and what TFN's plans are for the uh, upcoming year. One of the things that happened early on in the new year for us was our uh, board meeting last week, Stephen. I know you were there listening in on all the action. So all of the members came together right across um, all parts of the North to discuss uh, various matters and topics of interest. So uh, why don't you run us through a a few of those? Um, Northern Rail franchise in particular, everybody wants to talk about that at the moment. Yeah, definitely. And I think I think it all boils down to, in a nutshell, the main message from the members is the fact that uh, they need to put the passengers first. Um, I think the big problems that they've had is that uh, getting people where they need to go isn't always necessarily at the top of the agenda. So I think our members have done a really strong job of making sure the operators are held to account and pushing them as, as hard as they can to make sure that they actually get people to where they need to be, which is fundamentally the job, I suppose. Um, so I think they've looked at, particularly we've heard about what's happened with, with Northern, obviously the government have made the announcement that they're going to look mm-hmm. at uh, the different options for what to do with the franchise following them being removed. But I think our members have constant, consistently pushed uh, that we should look for an operator of last resort. Um, which would essentially mean that you know we could potentially have a much stronger say in, in how, what's being run on the franchises. And um, as well as the Northern franchise as well, I think we, there was also the Rail North committee on that day. And um, again, the members of that committee were pushing TransPennine Express in particular to really improve their service, which I think has, has, has struggled a little bit since December. And this is what Councillor Heather Scott, Deputy Member for Tees Valley, had to say. They think that if they offer apologies, that puts things right, and I think that's not acceptable. I know that Ben Houcham had um, published an open letter about his concerns. Between 20 and 25% of the services in Tees Valley have been cancelled in the previous couple of weeks, so it is totally unacceptable. And related from that, another uh, matter that was discussed at the board was the Central Manchester Corridor, as Mm. it's known, which um, actually causes quite a lot of disruption right across the north. And that's part of the issues that the franchises have have felt, but also for other um, rail services as well. What was the what was the discussion? What was the update on that? Yeah, so I think I think the Central Manchester corridor is is kind of in a nutshell the the way that uh, transport for the north can work i think on the surface of it you would guess that something in central manchester was based around purely for manchester but that is definitely not the case there's an awful lot of services coming from the south and that's where across the north that run through manchester so we got the odds all card which is a great piece of infrastructure but without the other improvements at manchester piccadilly and, and oxford road we've essentially been left with a bottleneck 
so when we get problems around around that central Manchester corridor, it affects any services that are going off up towards the northeast and, and Yorkshire. So I think um, so I think the members actually recognising that, and we heard Nick Forbes from, from Newcastle who's saying you know he backs this proposal because he recognises this is a pan-northern issue. This isn't just a Manchester issue. It's something that they should all be caring about. And I think that came very strongly across from board members. Andy Burnham, member for Greater Manchester, had to say this. Because this is a, a crucial issue, not just to us, but to the whole uh, of the north of England. Sometimes I know it can sound like Manchester asking again, and we are asking, but the bottleneck in this place uh, causes um, delays in, in Leeds uh, and Liverpool, and of course cancellations further north in Darlington, Durham and, and Newcastle. So th this is everyone's uh, uh, challenge. I just would kind of point to the, the scale of the, uh, the issue. Uh, which is illustrated, I would say, in paragraph 3.1. And this just shows how the, the railway of the north has changed in a, let's say, a, has gone backwards, let's say, in the second half of the 20th century. The figure of um, 49 platforms in central Manchester in the 1960s down to 25 today, when we're talking about growth on the railways, I, I think explains some of the scenes we see at times on platforms 13 and 14 at Manchester Piccadilly, but also the, some of the scenes we've seen more recently at Manchester Victoria unacceptable levels of, of, of overcrowding. Yeah, and I think that was the real um, real impact from board last week was that all the members were, were really coming together and discussing how a problem in, in one place on the network really does have a ripple effect and can affect other areas as well. And there's a real sense of everybody working together to, to make these things happen because they know that it benefits um, those, those uh, services right across the north. So that, that was really great to see. Also at the board meeting last week, uh, members voted to expand the membership of the partnership board and for the first time we'll have members of the trade unions as well as representatives from passenger groups, disability groups and environmental groups as well onto the partnership board. So I mentioned at the start of the episode that Stephen spoke to Barry White, our chief executive recently, touching on things that we've achieved over the past year, what we're looking forward to in 2020. It's a really great listen, so uh, stay tuned. Here it comes. Hi, Barry. Thank you very much for joining us today. Um, so I think you've been at Transport for the North for around two years now. Uh, so what are some of the highlights of your time here and what do you think are some of the big things that we achieved in, in 2019? It is two years and, and it's flown by and uh, there's been many highlights in those two years. I would say some personal ones for me, riding on a new train for the first time in the North that's been part, been delivered in part of the work that was done many years ago and that's in many ways what Transport for the North is about, today's work for tomorrow's benefit, you know, so we need to put in the work now to secure that long-term benefit. So things like Warrington having a new station, you know, that actually helps people who living in Warrington to travel to work. There's lots of practical things happening. Uh, a new road being approved in Carlisle that will unlock uh, housing. And I think housing is one of the key things as a nation. We need to do more to provide more housing for people. So lots of very practical things, but also the passion that people in Transport for the North have about making a difference. And that's the bit that I love so much is people really care about driving forward that agenda of making the North an even better place to live and work. And people really care deeply about that here. 
And that's why we managed to get the strategic transport plan done. That's why we got the business, the initial business case for Northern Powerhouse Rail done. And there's been a lot of progress made across all work areas. And that's driven forward by the passion of the people here at Transport for the North. Excellent. That's definitely a very, a very good response. And it sounds like you've enjoyed your, enjoyed your time here. So I think, um, obviously, we, we, we have a board uh, that Transport for the North is made up of the, of the 20 local transport authorities across the north of England, plus uh, the, the local enterprise partnerships as well. Um, so the latest one was just held on the 8th of January, and I start to the new year. So I think, can you give us an overview to, for our listeners about um, what happened at that board and some of the key decisions that were made? Transport for the North board has, as you say, local transport authorities, all also local enterprise partnership representatives. It's a combination of political leadership as well as business leadership. And it's a really mm. good way to look at transport for the North because mm. it's about people, but it's about the economy as well. And, and, mm. and I think it's a really uh, good environment to... Uh, look at the issues that are in the transport network. So at our most recent meeting, uh, we were looking at the Northern Rail franchise and the Trans-Pennine franchise, both of which are underperforming. And there's broad agreement now in the UK, or in England rather, that the franchising system is pretty much broken. And we look forward to the Williams Review in due course being published, and then the government acting to replace the current franchise system with something that puts the passenger much more at the heart. Mm. Uh, so we heard from the train companies from Northern Transpennine on their performance, their plans to improve it, and we'll keep monitoring their progress and we'll use the contract and the mechanisms in the contract to push that forward. But it does rely on them improving services to passengers. Mm. We also looked at something that's called the Central Manchester Corridor. Mm. Now that sounds something that really is important to central Manchester. Actually, it's important to all of the north because if you get a train from York to Middlesbrough, chances are it's travelled through the central Manchester corridor earlier that day. The central Manchester corridor is a very congested bit of the network. It's one of three officially declared congested zones on network rails infrastructure and it desperately needs investment. This is an investment that was promised some time ago. Mm. A decision then was taken to do part of the investment, but not at all. And by investing the, the, the balance of that to expand platforms at Piccadilly, extra platforms at, uh, bigger platforms at Oxford Road Station, some signalling work, some extra sidings, will ease that congestion and trains right across the north mm will run much better as a result. And what was great at the board was there was wholehearted support from across the north for investment in Manchester, but knowing that that investment is really important to all of the north. We also then looked at things like a strategy on long-term fares and ticketing. And again, this is very much tied in with the Williams Review. Passengers just want simpler fares. They want to be more confident they're getting value for money. And really just, if you turn up and buy a ticket, that belief that you're being treated mm. fairly is really important. And then finally, we, one of the cases we're looking at was the Trans-Pennine route upgrade, which, which is an upgrade plan to improve the railway network between Manchester, Leeds, and on to Selby and York. And that's a £2.9 billion investment, 
the business case mm. that the Department for Transport are writing uh, that's due to be done this spring. And what we really want to see is that driven forward. So I think a lot of people tend to think about uh, Northern Transport and they tend to think that it's all about Manchester to Leeds when uh, there's actually a lot more to it than that. I think you touched on the station improvements at Warrington and how improvements in Manchester can benefit the rest of the North. Um, but do you have anything that you can say that will uh, that'll help people that are in North East, in, in Sheffield or Hull, just to show that we really are looking to connect the whole of the North? Well, what has delighted me this year is we have working with the train companies working network rail we've doubled the frequency of trains between carlisle and newcastle and we have just working again with the same companies doubled the frequency of services between scarborough and hull so right across the network we want to see improvements on the road network we're pushing for improvements on the a66 running um, east-west across the northern part of the pennines and that's crucial for the North East and for Cumbria and, and I would argue for people in Northern Ireland trying to get to the Humber as well. So these strategic links on the road network are, are actually really important to businesses as they transit the North as well as businesses in the North. Okay, excellent. Thank you. Um, so just to look ahead to 2020 now, and what do you think is going to be coming up for transport for the North this year? Well, 2020 is... A really exciting year ahead. Uh, let's just have talk about some of the things I see coming that are uh, really fundamental. Uh, first of all, we're pushing for extra devolution. Uh, that's uh, something that our members in the spending review this summer, we're assuming will be a spending review this summer, uh, and we want to see greater powers coming to the north because we want to be more accountable and responsible for the decision-making in the North. Mm. And the, some of the historic decision-making, the decades of underinvestment, we want to see that overturned with that local decision-making behind it. But things like the Williams Review, which is the government-launched review into how the rail industry is structured, that will fundamentally change uh, how the railways are run. The, I think called the Oak Review Review, which is looking at high speed too. We want to s understand what, Okrufi has said and what the government's response to that. We want to see High Speed 2 built in full and it's an integral part of how we want to deliver Northern Powerhouse Rail, that vital mm -hmm. economic infrastructure for the North. But more practically, I'm really looking forward to the last pacer on the network disappearing <laughs> off to the scrapyard and we'll, we'll all <laughs> give a cheer when it disappears off. We want to see the last of the new trains introduced in the network. But for instance, the new Hitachi trains turning up uh, at Leeds Station on the way to the northeast, that new Hitachi train, built in, in the northeast, by the way, as well at New mm. Naycliffe, uh, is or, or can hold twice as many people, twice as many seats on that train mm. as the train it replaced, and that's the difference we want to see. You know, this practical uh, uh, benefit for people travelling across the north. In addition to that, we are stepping up our work in Parliament. We have launched a transport across the North all-party parliamentary group. Mm. And we launched that to make sure that we were addressing the needs of towns uh, and cities and getting towns right up there on the agenda in Parliament because we think that's really important. And the connectivity we'll be working on this year, yes, we do want to connect the cities better, but we want to make sure the towns are really well connected as well so that 
the opportunities for work and travel and leisure. Uh, so things like looking at opportunities in uh, to reopen some of the beaching lines that um, were closed. That was something that's in our investment programme. It's something the government put in its manifesto for the election. So let's try and drive those opportunities forward. So you touched on devolution before in terms of what's coming up uh, for the North of England in 2020 about moving that, that agenda forward. So there's been a lot of talk recently about what devolution would mean for the North. So what does that mean to you and, and how do you think we, we can get there? Devolution, to me, is a journey rather than an end point. I worked in Scotland for many years there was devolution initially, then there's additional, de- you know, so, so you move decision-making closer to the people that it affects. And I firmly believe we get better decisions when that happens. And one example I often use is in Scotland, there was a railway reopened from Edinburgh to Gala Shields. So from Edinburgh, we're heading south into the borders. An old, railway line that was closed under what's called the beaching cuts and I believe in England that railway reopening would not have happened because of things like the treasury appraisal process uh, and decision making on a central basis whereas with more local decision making that's the type of decision people can make and will make and interesting that railway when it opened has stimulated so much house building because actually, once you have a railway and you have that connectivity, villages and towns can flourish uh, because they have that connectivity to the jobs market. And I think it's a really good example of how um, local decision-making can drive forward an agenda that's centralised decision-making. And boy, do we have a centralised system in the UK. By all measures, one of the most centralised in Europe. So getting those devolved decisions... Our politicians say to me frequently, we really want the responsibility and accountability. Let us make the decisions and then we can be accountable for them. That's, so it's power, but power with a purpose and power with accountability. And that's what we want to see. How has Transport for the North been engaging with the new government to progress uh, big projects such as, as Northern Paris Rail? Clearly the new government with its majority, uh, has arrived with a sense of purpose, has made many commitments to the North. So our view is, let's work with them, let's seize that opportunity and work with them to deliver the promises they've made to the North. And we see that as a huge opportunity. Northern Powerhouse Rail, uh, Cumbrian Coastline, uh, the Ashington Blythe Railway into Newcastle. There's a freight line there at the moment, but let's reopen that to passengers. Um, the investment in roads, we want to see what's called RIS2, the Roads Investment Strategy 2, Highways England's plans for investment for the next five years. That's yet to be announced. We want to see that the North gets a share, a good share of the investment of, of in roads. The clearly, for us, road transport in the north is still a big part of how people move around and improving the road network to make journey times more predictable is so important. Now, what we also want to see from the government is how can we push forward the green agenda in terms of 
electric vehicles? Can we accelerate the introduction of electric vehicles? Can we make sure the infrastructure to charge those vehicles is there? So Norway has more than 60% of its new vehicles fully electric, whereas in the UK at the moment, it's something like 2%. So we've a lot to aim for to make road transport greener. So we've been pushing the government on that as well. There's been a lot of talk in the media recently about changes to the to the Treasury Green Book process. Uh, so could you explain what those potential changes could mean for, for transport for the North and, and, and the schemes that we're putting forward? I've been a fan of changes to the Green Book for some time. I gave evidence to the Transport Select Committee whenever they were looking at this. In effect, the current system targets investment to areas that are already productive and have a lot of people in them. Whereas a more revised system could look and say, well, where can we unlock growth? Where, we, where can we make things happen rather than simply easing current congestion? And the example I would give in the north is the railway line between Sheffield and Manchester. Because it's, it's a relatively slow journey and a relatively crowded journey, or a very crowded journey, not as many people commute between Sheffield and Manchester as you might expect for two cities of comparable size. We believe if you invest in something, in a range of measures that will improve journey times, and reliability and frequency on that railway, there's latent demand that could be unlocked. So the appraisal process has to capture the wider benefits. Um, but also, you have to look at the outcomes from the current appraisal process. We have one of the most unbalanced economies in Europe. The Comparison sometimes used, it's a bit like fly, flying a plane in one engine. The other engines are there, but they aren't fully powered up. So whether you're a fan of the Green Book or whether you're not a fan of the Green Book, you do have to say there's something wrong in a system that has allowed investment to pour in and continue to pour in to the southeast while under-investing in the rest of the country and particularly under-investing in the north. So whether it be into our towns and into our rural areas, whether it be between some of our cities where there's that latent demand, the appraisal process should change in a way that allows some of the strategic intent of what we're doing, some of the unlocking potential, as well as purely an economic test. You touched on, again, the, 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 the comprehensive spending review that we may be expecting in the summer. Uh, but before that, we've got the budget coming up on the 11th of March uh, with some expected announcements around spending in the North's transport infrastructure. So what would you like to hear from, from the budget? So the budget's due in March. We would like to see the manifesto commitments that have been made start to be translated into spending commitments. So things like um, Northern Powerhouse Rail can a demonstrable commitment to Northern Powerhouse Rail as a full network connecting the North East, connecting across from Liverpool to Hull, Sheffield. Uh, can that commitment be made in a meaningful way that, drive, that helps drive that forward? We do want to see uh, a commitment to a long-term investment programme in the North. 
that would allow us, for instance, to have a rolling program of electrification on the railway that would enable um, economies of scale, cost effectiveness. So if you're doing it day in, day out for a number of years in a program, we'd like to see a, you know, a program established that could drive better value for money, but help decarbonize the railway. Uh, the test really for us is around whether spending levels in the north are increasing substantially uh, or not. And we believe the government does want to and should increase spending in the north. And that's what we want to see in aggregate when we look at all the commitments in the budget is a, a long-term commitment to investing in the north. So a lot of people look at uh, the northern uh, infrastructure announcements that have been made and it could be argued that a lot of the, the coverage is centred around the Manchester to Leeds aspect of it. So is there anything you can say to people that aren't from Manchester and Leeds that, that you know what Transport for the North are doing will, will benefit them? It's a really good question because Northern Parish Rail is about so much more than that. If you live in the North East, whether that be in Newcastle or Sunderland, Northern Powerhouse Rail Services will run to the northeast. They will stop in Darlington, so the Tees Valley will have benefits from Northern Powerhouse Rail. But other areas, Bradford, Warrington, um, these are all places that will have stations on the Northern Powerhouse Rail network. But even if you're not actually directly on that network, the fact that the economy is growing and there are more jobs means if you live in the northeast and the northeast economy is growing because NPR has provided that better connectivity to the area, reducing journey times between Newcastle and Leeds to an hour from about 90 minutes at the moment, um, that is the benefit people will feel whether they actually travel on Northern Powerhouse Rail or not. And likewise, I would say in areas in, in Lancashire, say Preston as an example, um, the connectivity from Preston down into, say, Manchester, but then right across the north from there from Northern Powerhouse Rail provides a real opportunity for people in the uh, Lancashire area to access a much bigger jobs market. So the wider ripples of Northern Powerhouse Rail will be um, felt in areas beyond where the rail network actually exists it itself. And I would add to that that the capacity provided by Northern Powerhouse Rail um, will enable people to make a choice between driving somewhere or uh, taking the train. And we would want to see people making that choice to have a greener future uh, uh, as well. So the benefits are widespread. It's about jobs and the economy, not just about train journeys. The green agenda has grown significantly in the past couple of years, if not if not the past decade. Um, so, how important is it to ensure that you know the impacts of climate change are being taken into consideration by Transport for the North? It's absolutely central to what we're doing. Transport planning uh, is in a new environment now in terms of the commitment to net zero by 2050. Some people think we should be moving faster than that, uh, but that's the national target. We see a lot of change happening, both at a local level, which is more with the city regions and the local transport authority that are our members 
have a massive role to play. But then on that pan-northern basis, how do we work with government to accelerate the adoption of electric cars? Uh, how do we look to get freight um, off the road and onto rail? How do we decarbonise the railway? How do we encourage active travel connected in to these other modes? How do we get that kilometre, the last kilometre, the walking to the station, the cycling to the station? So as part of what we're doing, the green agenda will be front and centre of our thinking as we develop all our plans. Okay, right. Thank, thank you very much, Barry, for, for joining us and giving up some of, some of your time to come and talk to us and, and particularly our listeners, who I'm sure are very, very keen to hear what you've got in store for 2020. Thank you very much, Stephen. So we've already got 2020 off to a really exciting and busy start and there will be plenty more to come. We are waiting outcomes of the Williams Review, of the Oakvie Review. We're waiting for announcements on funding for things like the National Roads Fund bid for road schemes, which we submitted in summer. So there'll be plenty still to come, still happening in the world of transport. And uh, recently we also heard from uh, Stephen Brown, who is the Chief Operating Officer for the Rugby League World Cup in 2021. So I think um, that's obviously very topical at the moment. We've just had had the draw. Um, So I'm sure you'll all be keen to hear what Stephen has to say. I'm Stephen Brown. I'm the Acting Chief Operating Officer at the Rugby League World Cup 2021. As you can tell by my accent, I I was born and bred in the North East. I think very much based on our values as a World Cup, I think resonates with what we are as, as Northerners. You get that honesty, that passion, that pride, and that real commitment. How did you get here today? I uh, used public transport to get here today. Uh, I uh, live in Staley Bridge in North Manchester, so I got on the Trans Pennine Express into Leeds. I had a reserve seat, very comfortable, air-conditioned carriage. So yeah, it was it was good, good journey. What does hosting the Rugby League World Cup mean for the North? I think it's a fantastic opportunity to to host the Rugby League World Cup for the North. Um, Way back in 2015, when uh, the World Cup decided, well, the RFL decided to bid for the World Cup, it was very much predicated on uh, the Northern Powerhouse agenda. Um, We went to government, lobbied to government, to George uh, Osborne and David Cameron at the time, uh, and asked them if they would uh, basically invest in the World Cup. Uh, and and th- they did, and that was based on the Northern Power. So we, we got £25 million invested into the World Cup. £15 million is directly into the competition, and a further £15 million goes to Capital, uh, Capital Legacy Programme uh, through our Inspiration All Programme. Why are most of the grounds that are hosting the events in the North, why, why is it so Northern biased? Um, very much based on the Northern Powerhouse. So when we uh, were successful in getting money from the government, it was predicated that 75% of the games must be in the Northern Powerhouse. So very much if you take from the bottom of Sheffield, right up to the north uh, and up to the northeast, uh, that was kind of our geographical makeup. So a lot of that was predicated on that. But equally, the sport is synonymous with the North and very much in terms of the M62 corridor. And therefore, it was very much going back to to those uh, rugby league heartlands. But also equally, the Midlands and London are very important to us. And we've got a game in in Coventry. And we've also got the first time that any other sport other than football would be played at the Emirates Stadium. So really good, but very much around that Northern powerhouse agenda and also focusing on the rugby league heartlands in the North. Why is rugby league such an important part of the culture in the North and what's the strength of feeling around rugby league in the North? 
I, I think ultimately when you think of rugby league, I think you naturally you think of the north. Um, I, I'm, I am not a, a rugby league um, supporter in any way. My sport is football. I think ultimately, even though saying that, I'm from the northeast. Whenever I watched rugby league on the BBC, there's northern teams and northern towns being represented on that. Uh, the sport has been uh, in existence for over 150 years. So I think it very much is deep root, in deep rooted in those northern towns and cities, and very much comes from that working class, um, working class authentic roots of, of, of the north. How do you think the Rugby League World Cup is going to showcase the north to the rest of England and internationally? Yep. Uh, in terms of showcasing the the, the, the sport and the north, uh, the north to the world, very much when we started, we started a bidding process back in 18 months ago, um, and went out across the whole of the country and had 40 expressions of interest from towns and cities from the top of the north, top of the country right down to the bottom of the country and, and left to right. Um, and that interest very much came from local authorities. It was very public sector led. And a lot of that we met with a lot of leaders and councils from, from all of those towns and cities. And it was very much the overriding emphasis that came from there was showcasing their particular town and city, not only to the, to, to the England and to UK, but also to, to countries outside of, of the UK. Um, very much around pride, place. Uh, it's that postcard opportunity that ultimately a World Cup provides. The North is a vibrant, growing economy. It's a, it's you know, digital. Uh, Leeds is very much a thriving digital community, and also Manchester in terms of having the BBC and ITV based there. So yes, it has its traditional roots, but equally, it's an emerging economy and an emerging, vibrant place to live. What do you think that um, legacy will be for those towns and cities? Obviously, not not keen only to get people in for the day of the event, what does it mean for them in, in terms of lasting impact? Yeah, we, we ultimately, by virtue of the sport, we, we touch on some very hard to reach communities in the north um, who are suffering from health inequalities, educational inequalities, but also around social, social deprivation. So therefore, we see this as a real good opportunity, not only for us to transcend the sport and put the sport on another platform uh, in terms of from a participation perspective, but also around health uh, around mental health, dementia, loneliness. We're working with Public Health England around some initiatives around, around that, but also around education and around pe getting people back into work through our volunteering programme. We're looking at recruiting over 2,000 volunteers that ultimately we hope that will be their step change to get back into full-time employment within those communities. We also took a commitment way back in 18 months and we employed a legacy programme director and we have a legacy programme called Inspiration All. And I think that really shows the importance of what legacy is for us as a, as a World Cup uh, and also that, that opportunity that the World Cup presents to, to those communities of the North. How, um, how do you think transport could be improved to encourage more people to visit the North, whether that's for the rugby or other leisure activities? Transport is central to any major, any major tournament and equally it will be uh, very important for us in terms of the Rugby League World Cup. We very much see that we have an obligation to look at sustainable transport. We want over 750,000 people to come and watch Rugby League in 21 different venues across the whole of the country, but predominantly those being in the north. Therefore, we've, as a commitment to that, we've signed up to the UN climate uh, change. Uh, we are one of only seven major tournaments that are doing that. So therefore, we see that it's important in terms of what we provide, but also working with partners such as Transport for North to provide those opportunities and networks for our supporters and our customers to come and watch a game. 
that they can enjoy. We very much see that it's a whole customer journey. So as soon as that person buys a ticket, they are interacting with the World Cup. Therefore, then how they get to the game and then ultimately how they leave the game is very important to us. So we want to provide the best possible opportunities that we can, that they get the best experience they get from watching not only the 80 minutes on the field of play, but the minute they leave the house, going back to their house afterwards. So very much transport is really at the heart of our whole planning process, whether that's trains, planes, cars, bikes, etc., walking, all of mode forms of transport, we very much want to have that as central to our, to our whole planning process. What would you say to people who are maybe thinking about coming out to watch a rugby game that maybe they've never done before? What would you say to encourage them? Yeah, very good. that's a very good question about why to come and watch the sport. Um, I am not a rugby league fan, I am a football fan. Um, however, I went to watch my first game, uh, funnily enough, in the 2013 World Cup. I worked on it. And I think you're just drawn in by that whole honesty and that integrity and just literally the athleticism of the sport. Uh, and once you go, I, don't, I think you're hooked then. You, 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 you want to watch it more and more. Um, but equally, is we don't see the sport alone will ultimately get us to 750,000 spectators. Um, we are not ultimately saying you have to be a rugby league diehard fan to come and watch. It's more than the 80 minutes on the field of play. We're very much looking at it from also as, as an entertainment event. So how we can connect with people who are um, who Generation Z and Generation Alpha, who are very much in tune with a smartphone and, and, digit, and being digitally connected, and what we can provide outside of that 80 minutes from an entertainment perspective. So as I mentioned before, as soon as you buy your ticket, you are then part of that journey and enjoying that part of that experience, whether that be through social channels, whether that be through augmented reality or virtual reality or through gamification or whatever, that you are then hooked into watching rugby league and you then become a rugby league fan. So a little roundup now then of what's going on and coming up with Transport for the North. Lots of exciting things due to happen, starting with our new strategy and programme director, David Hughes. He joined us this week, so he's brand new to Transport for the North, ready and raring to go. David joins us from Transport for London, so he's made the move up north. He's worked on projects such as Crossrail and London Underground and London Rail, bringing with him a whole load of experience and enthusiasm to hopefully boost some of our transport projects in the north. So welcome on board, David, and I'm sure some of you will hear and see David around at uh, events and meetings in the near future. That's all from us for this month. Thanks ever so much to my colleague Stephen for joining me again. Thanks, Gemma. We will be back next month with another podcast, but don't forget, in the meantime, you need to stay in tune with everything that's happening at Transport for the North. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Transport for the North podcast. Don't forget you can subscribe on Spotify and SoundCloud so you never miss an episode. You can find us on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook for all our latest updates. And join us on our website where you can find all the latest news and sign up to our All Points North newsletter.